The thing that bothered me was also that it was so unfair. I expected pushback on the ideas that are in the book. I didn't expect to be treated badly because I had these ideas. Yeah, but that's because you dared to say it. I mean, as you said in one of your tweets, you know, how dare you not be grateful? How dare you, brown Muslim woman, say these things? No migrants more in. No Europe without Christianity. An alliance also with Russia. EU Scream, in association with EU Observer. Episode 74, Against White Feminism, Europe Edition. Author Rafia Zakaria, in conversation with think tanker and journalist Shada Islam. Shada, we're starting a series of conversations on the podcast. You're going to be talking to some of the most prominent thinkers and writers on race and anti-racism. This is really exciting. It's really exciting, James. These are dynamic and highly respected thinkers, and we need to hear them. We need to hear them here in Europe. And let me say, listeners, we are lucky, so lucky to have them. And we're thinking of these conversations as helping to address a phenomenon called Brussels So White. This term has some history, some provenance, and we should absolutely acknowledge that, I think. So I've been interested in the way Europe, the European Union, is so white. And what do I mean when I say Brussels is so white? I mean, the EU institutions do not have people of color in any, let's say, major appointments that they've made in recent years. There's no European commissioner who's ever been a person of color. And the thing is, in all my years in Brussels as a journalist, as a think tanker, I've never really encountered a high-level decision maker who is a person of color. And that does not represent the diversity of Europe today. And many people have been involved in this campaign, Brussels So White, but I have to give a shout out to Ryan Heath from Politico, who actually coined the term and did a series on it for the paper. Agreed. And let's just note that the term people of color, it doesn't sit well with everyone. What we mean is people who don't identify as white and people from racialized minorities. But for the sake of having this discussion, we're using people of color. And there just isn't one perfect consensus way of talking about the lack of ethnic diversity in the EU bubble. A lack of diversity that also diminishes diversity of thought and ideas too. Let's talk about your guest for this episode's conversation, Rafia Zakaria. She's emerged as a major figure in these debates. Yes, and her book, Against White Feminism, is a bestseller. She's an author, she's a civil rights attorney, and she's a feminist. And she's created shockwaves in feminism. She's called out icons. So she's brought new content and new ideas onto the feminist agenda. And yes, you're right. She's called out some major icons like Gloria Steinem and, of course, Simone de Beauvoir. So far, you see, feminism has been perceived as being about white women and about their concerns and their priorities. I don't think that a lot of white people, white women included, obviously, uh, understand what it's like to inhabit the shoes of an immigrant woman. What makes Rafia 
very difficult to dismiss is that she has the added legitimacy of her lived experience. So she's a brown Muslim woman. She's an immigrant. She's had a history of domestic abuse. She had an arranged marriage. And now she's a single mom. And of course, she's a scholar, a feminist and an activist. So quite an amazing woman. Salam, how are you, my dear? Walaikum salam. I'm really excited. I'm going to kick off, Rafia, with a question for you. It's about Europe, how your book has been received in Europe. There was a controversy about your book in France. It was de facto banned, right? It's not officially banned. And it's not just this book, but you, you cannot purchase books on critical race theory in France. You cannot do it. They consider that so dangerous an idea. It's, and it's so shocking, isn't it? Because here are the French who pride themselves on being the most pro-enlightenment people debating everything, <laughs> but they won't allow us to have critical race theory books in their bookshops. So I was surprised with that, but I was surprised also, I mean, in the UK, uh, if we're including that in Europe, in the UK, when this book came out, in one week, there were three, three editorials, one in The Observer, one in The Spectator, and a third in The Times just absolutely trying to just blow this thing apart. You know, okay, yeah, not everybody likes the book. That's true of any book. And in this case, I knew it's a provocative book. So obviously people will have reactions to it. But then, like in one week for so many newspapers to devote time and these women see any sort of critique as indelibly tied to... Uh, being ungrateful for the rights that they have won for all these other women, you know, the fight that they fought. I don't know that the people who wrote those editorials even read the book. For some of us here in Europe who are anti-racist and who are talking about decolonizing our minds and working against discrimination and for more participation for underrepresented groups, this is also quite a challenging time. And we're told, you know what, you're importing woke American ideas. These are not European ideas. And so have you detected this European allergy to American ideas? I mean, you know, I've been... Uh surprised. In, in some ways, I found the book to be more shocking to Europeans than it has been for Americans. One explanation for that, and I'm not being an Amer American exceptionalist, but, um, you know, we have in the United States, terrible, terrible forms of racial discrimination ongoing today. The U.S. has a history of a civil rights movement and a struggle for racial equality. At least it's still a part of the discussion. There's uh, some embarrassment around the fact that all Fortune 500 boards of companies are, if there are women there, 95% 
white women. We've had a whole intellectual tradition, critical race theory, that is around the idea of intersectionality, around the idea of, you know, you can't consider one aspect of a person's identity. It has to be race and class and, you know, and gender. So in that sense, I've found the European attitude remarkably different in that there is a lot less familiarity in Europe, for instance, with calling out whiteness, you know, or saying white or saying this is white culture. Even that term I felt in interviews is really controversial. Like I, I feel like even my interviewers often are self-conscious about using it. Right. You're absolutely right about how we in Europe still have a long way to go in actually openly discussing questions of racism. But let me ask you that. What do you mean by that? You know, in, in how do you see that difference? I'm sitting here in America, but like, I, I'm very curious. For us here in Europe, these conversations have always been on the margins of policymaking. And for me, what was quite a defining moment, obviously, was 9-11, um, which had huge repercussions across Europe in terms of the rise in anti-Muslim feelings, Islamophobia. And it was the Black Lives Matter movement launched in the United States after the death of George Floyd that I think was a wake-up call for many of us here. It gave us the opening the strength to actually come out and say that this was a problem that was not just an American issue of race. And we had immediate pushback from the European Union institutions saying, well, racism is an American phenomena. Police brutality is an American phenomena. It has nothing to do with Europe. But there were others. There were others like Angela Merkel of Germany, Mark Rutter of the Netherlands, who did admit that there was systemic racism in Europe and promised to try and change that. So that conversation sort of gathered momentum then, Rafia, and the European Commission came up with an anti-racism action plan. So all of this is very new. It's uh, embryonic, really, the conversation. In terms of when you look at questions like the headscarf, the hijab, you know, it's become the big question, the veil in France, you know, uh, women are being told not to wear that public life in public spaces. This was the big question during the French presidential elections. What do you think about questions like that when you look at Europe and you look at big and very impressive countries like France engaging in such discussions about how women dress in public life? That That is one of those issues that I feel like doesn't show much of a mark of progress. I mean, it's ridiculous that the French government will doesn't let women wear what they want. I mean, it's just nuts. Um, you know, I mean, of course, here in the U.S., we are going in a in our own morass of misogyny and patriarchy. But um, I often find the debate in Europe to be more sneering. You know, that's the word I would use to describe European attitudes towards race and discussions surrounding race and gender, is a very sneering attitude, not one of respect, uh, but of extreme condescension. 
And the headscarf plays into that. I mean, you know, the Muslims feel erased from French culture. And as part of the protest against that, you know, they wear the headscarf. They're forcing themselves to be visible, right? Um, because it's it's so contradictory and it's so hypocritical, and yet the French seem to gobble it up. You know, when you when you see that, then you think they're never gonna do this. Like they're never gonna try to create any kind of progress or meaningful change or understanding. I mean, you know, the kids post nine eleven kids are now graduating from college but they are facing the same prejudice that was around 20 years ago. I mean, I wrote a whole book about the veil, trying to explain how its meaning changes depending on the context in which it is interpreted. The thing is that the media gobbles it up and the media sort of amplifies the narrative that the headscarf is a sign either of Islamist tendencies, so very driven politically, or a sign of victims, patriarchy and awful, repressive brown Muslim men. Uh, And there seems to be no kind of midway clarity about what the headscarf means. It's rebellion, but also a form of victimization and subjugation. But I think French women, Muslim women, are fighting back pretty strongly. And there was a fantastic moment during the presidential election where the French president, Emmanuel Macron, was uh, interviewed by a woman wearing a hijab, a young woman wearing a hijab. And she went up to him and asked him a question that had nothing to do with Islam, where he says to her, oh, madam, you're wearing a headscarf. And he says, were you forced to put it on? And she says, no, I wasn't forced to put it on. Je peux me permettre d'être indiscret. Oui. Vous portez un voile par choix ou vous imposez I'm a feminist. And he says, wow, a Muslim feminist, young woman who is a feminist. See, everyone, isn't this fantastic? Avoir une jeune fille qui porte le voile à Strasbourg qui dit, est-ce que vous êtes féministe? C'est la meilleure des réponses à toutes les bêtises que j'entends. Parce que d'autre côté, Madame Le Pen qui dit les vols seront interdits sur la place. That moment, he showed that he was actually proud of it. And you know, during the presidential election, at one point, he did say that he was open to the idea of the headscarf. That was in his conversation with the Marine Le Pen from the far right. And uh, when she said she would ban it, he said, oh, this will lead to a civil war. This is a crazy idea. So I think his his thinking is evolving. I wanted to also talk to you a little bit, Rafia, about this rather derogatory and civilizational comments that we've had in the Western media uh, amplified about how a war in Ukraine, a war in Europe, is different from other wars that have taken place in distant places because, you know, this is happening in a civilized European country and these people are like us, you know, they are Christian, they're white, they have blue eyes. Actually, If I may say so, those kinds of double standards in the good refugees coming from Ukraine and the bad refugees are brown and Muslim uh, coming from Africa and uh, South Asia. And this is having a rather serious impact on Europe's global image and its hopes of becoming a global, a geopolitical player. Yeah, I absolutely share your sentiments. I'm working on an article that actually compares the way Yazidi women in Iraq were depicted in uh, Western media versus how Ukrainian women 
uh, who have also suffered sexual violence as a result of war, war rape, essentially, are being talked about. It is very important, I think, to point out that barbarism, male barbarity, is not the province of just one kind of man, like Muslim, for instance. And I think the war in Ukraine and what Russian soldiers are doing is indicative of that. And, and you know, I have written about the difference in treatment. The most glaring example is that here in the United States, you know, there's a remain in Mexico policy for migrants wanting to apply for asylum to the United States. And now uh, priority is going to be given to Ukrainian refugees. In last year, the United States took in about 10,000 refugees. And last year was the year when the U.S. winded up its war in Afghanistan. And in that year, it was only 10,000. But now, this year, there's a war in Ukraine. And just for Ukrainians, just for Ukrainians, that policy is being extended, and they're going to take in 100,000 refugees. You know, in Germany, a lot of uh, educational institutions are allowing Ukrainian students to, you know, go to school at their universities and, and finish their degree. But I spoke to a Nigerian woman who had also been at school in Ukraine, and they told her and all others like her that Germany said, you better leave by May 26th. It's depressing because, you know, it's the sort of feeling when, when you know that something might be true, but when you see it so blatantly, I don't know. It was a very tough moment for me because while I know that this is true, to see it in such a visible way, you know, in this in this sense, I am also grateful to CNN. I mean, I wonder sometimes because the first story around this in Ukraine on how black and brown women and kids were being treated differently uh, was reported on by Sarah Seidner, who is an African-American reporter. I can't help but wonder that if a white reporter had been sent to cover that story, if this story about how black and brown people were being treated differently uh, would ever even have sort of emerged on the world stage. Yeah, that's why diversity in press rooms is so important. So, Rafia, you get very exercised about the rather clumsy way that feminists and activists have been complicit in racism through such practices like using the Orientalist concept at fundraising events. And one of the scenes I also really related to in your book is about going to an event where you know, white feminists who had invited you were rather looking down at the third world women around them and looking at them as victims and without having any agency. And frankly, I see a lot of this myself where I live, which is in the heart of the EU European Union bubble. 
And so let's let's talk a little bit about this narrative that's been developed about exquisite white feminist saviors helping poor, helpless women in developing countries, especially Muslim women. Do you think that narrative is still there or has it been changing over the last few years? I just finished writing an article about a summit called what was it? Global Childcare Infrastructure summit or event. The, the sort of centerpiece of this event were, was a conversation between Samantha Power, who is, uh, you know, ambassador to the UN, and Melinda French Gates of the Gates Foundation. And they were discussing this new program that they've decided to invest in that's going to provide affordable childcare to Indian women to be the saviors. And they're having this conversation. I'm reading it. Maybe halfway through, Melinda French-Gate says, you know, if you go around in India, you see all sorts of adolescent girls with babies on their backs. And like they're going about doing, like selling things on the street. uh, And their babies are just there behind their back. And Uh, That can't possibly be safe for a baby. Their program is needed to go teach Indian mothers how to be white American mothers, I suppose. In instances like that, in those moments, it's often very, very difficult to say, hey, hang on, you know, that's what did you just say, Melinda French Gates? So to some small extent, things are changing. You know, when you see something like this, you think, wow, like these women have no clue. They have no clue. And yet they're going to decide where hundreds of millions of dollars are going to go. Have they not understood the necessity of actually engaging with feminists from India, South Asia, Africa, when they are sort of investing so much money in programs that are expected to empower these women. Look, I mean, you're being condescending and patronizing to Indian women. You're so much in your bubble of entitlement that you don't you're not even self-conscious about saying something like that. You know, I mean the thing that these mothers would benefit from the most is actually direct cash transfer. Uh, because then they can decide what to do with the money instead of this child care program run by Americans uh, that's, you know, going to tell them what their priorities should be. But of course, you know, donors don't want to do that. USAID doesn't want to do that. You know, Melinda French Gates doesn't want to do that. It's not glamorous enough. They want very intentionally to be the saviors of these Indian women or Muslim women or whichever downtrodden country they sort of set themselves up. I want to help Indian women. The best thing to do for them is quite literally give them give them the money, let them decide. But we don't trust these women that they'll use it for the right purposes. Uh, but just to play devil's advocate for a bit there, Rafia, shouldn't women from... Uh, the Muslim countries from India, South Asia, more generally, Africa, be making that point more uh, strongly. Why has it been left to you, in a sense, 
your book against white feminism to be the one who comes out and says these things very forcefully, very eloquently. Uh, it's true. Why isn't there a little bit of complicity there among feminists in in uh, emerging countries as well that allows this kind of white savior mentality to flourish? Absolutely, 100%. And, you know, that is why at the beginning of the book, in the first page, I clarify that by white feminist, I don't mean a white woman who's a feminist. I was on BBC Women's Hour, and I had a kind of hostile host when I was, uh, Emma Barnett was the host, and her whole thing was trying to trip me on this issue. So she goes, well, I mean, our home secretary, Preeti Patel, is is not white. And, you know, she's for she's not pro-immigration, etc. And I said, you can be a brown white feminist and you can be a black white feminist, because if you adopt the policies, priorities, agendas where, you know, you use a racial category as a means of domination, then you are a white feminist. And in that sense, at least in Pakistan, where I'm from, there is these brokers that will, you know, translate Pakistan to USAID, this kind of middle women, you know, brown and black women who choose to go along with uh, whiteness and be the grateful brown feminist, they stand to gain a lot. They stand to gain a lot because they can sort of be in these conversations and stuff because they're safe brown women. But that's the whole reason I wrote the book is because I didn't feel that someone from my background who is uh, brown, you know, Muslim from Pakistan, conservative family, and then goes through like, you know, being a single mom and trying to work. And I, I just felt a great sense of responsibility to use the platform that I have. They can hate on me as much as they want. I'm willing to be punching bag and then start to normalize these sorts of questions. It must be a lonely place. Uh, I can understand that. But seriously, Raf, your, your book is selling so well. It's been translated into so many languages and you've been interviewed endlessly. Look, I never thought that the world would be in a place where I could write this book. When I, when I first showed it to my then agent, he not only said that it would never get published, he had like a visceral reaction to it. Here's this middle-aged white guy. And I mean, I, I just didn't expect that deal of emotion. And after that happened, I actually put this book away. This is April of 2019. It happened, just so happened that I had lunch with uh, a friend of mine and I told her about it. And she was like, my God, you have to write this book. So then I had to go through the whole process of getting another agent. I didn't believe until I physically held it in my hands. I didn't think that this book would get published. It, it was tough to strike the right tone in the book so that it's not bitter and angry, 
but rather explanatory and illuminating how this sort of hierarchy of feminism has been created where, you know, white women are at the top and everybody else is at the bottom. So, um, yeah, I mean, but I do think it begins the conversation. That's it for this episode. We reached out for comment from Melinda French Gates at the Gates Foundation on what she said at the childcare event, but we didn't get a response. We also reached out to the European Commission to confirm that there had indeed never been a commissioner of color. They responded that the institution does not classify staff, nor indeed commissioners, according to their color, but only according to nationality and gender. So they consider that they're not in a position to answer the question. EU Scream's nonprofit journalism is supported by listener donations, partnerships, and by advertising. And we're grateful to the Laura Kinsella Foundation for an annual grant. For more details and for more EU Scream, visit euscream.com or click on podcast at euobserver.com. I'm James Cantor. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>